Good evening, everybody. If you're from outside the LSE, welcome to the LSE. If you're inside the LSE, students, staff, uh, thank you very much for coming to this lecture. Welcome. Our speaker tonight is Professor Stefan Collini, Professor of Intellectual History and English Literature from Cambridge University, uh, author of many books on intellectual history, of which two most recent ones are Common Reading, Critics, Historians, Public, uh, 2008, and then Absent Minds, Intellectuals in Britain, uh, 2006. But he's here tonight, as you know, to talk about uh, what are universities for. I have to tell you before we start that uh, uh, Twitter, if you want the Twitter hashtag, is at LSE University. I don't understand Twitter, but I'm assuming that everybody here under the age of 50 does understand Twitter. So Twitter hashtag is at LSE University. To remind you, the lecture is being recorded, and hopefully the podcast will be available online, provided there are no technical difficulties. Professor Cleany will speak for about 45 minutes, and then he's very happy to answer questions. So you can store them up while he's speaking. Okay, Professor Cleany, thank you very much. Thank you, Jenny. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, I'm particularly pleased to have this chance to talk at the LSE about this subject, um, partly, of course, because uh, it is in its subject range a rather different kind of institution from most universities in Britain, uh, and partly if we did have that uh, much fabled beast uh, evidence-based policy making, if we did, um, I'm sure much of the evidence would be produced in this institution. Uh, it's also, it seems to me, an appropriate place to talk on this topic because this was, as I'm sure most of you know, the academic home of Lionel Robbins, who in 1963 oversaw the writing of the Robbins Report, uh, a public document which I have to say I think uh, puts more or less all recent official documents on this subject to shame. When it came out in 1963, Robbins' Report was uh, the object of a great deal of attention uh, and controversy. But I have to say that I think in the last couple of years, there has probably been more attention to the question of universities in this country than at any time before. I don't suppose I need to tell you that that discussion has not always been of a very elevated kind. And the discussion has often seemed to me to reduce to the following dispiriting proposition. Universities need to justify getting more money and the way to do this is by showing that they help to make more money. Now, the debate has, for obvious reasons, been dominated by the question of undergraduate fees, abstracted from all other aspects of the flourishing of these complex institutions. And that debate has largely been based, I think, on the assumption that the primary purpose of universities <coughs> is to train people for a particular employment and to make direct contributions to economic growth that they are, in other words, something like a cross between an employment agency and an industrial lab. Now, I've written the book that Janet referred to, What a University is For, to try to encourage us to stand back from this, I think, slightly narrow and parochial debate, and to take a view that is both comparative and longer term. In asking what universities are for, I'm trying to encourage us to think why the peculiar institution of the university has developed in the way it has and what makes it distinctive. What kinds of things does it do that go beyond narrow employment training or the development of industrial useful technology? 
Now, before I go any further, uh, rueful experience suggests I should try to remove three possible misunderstandings. First, I'm not here proposing some ideal or essence of a university, some way of distinguishing supposedly real universities from institutions that don't deserve the name. I was trying instead to reflect on the very variety of types that have grown up across the world, especially in the past two centuries, and on their relations to their host societies. And secondly, therefore, I'm not proposing some story of decline. Uh, some claim that there used to be so-called real universities, but now they've all been debased or destroyed. Not at all. In fact, I believe, as I shall say again later, that the expansion of tertiary-level education has been a great democratic gain, and it's one that I believe we should continue to support. And thirdly, and I'd like to be very clear and emphatic about this, more rueful experience here, I'm not saying that universities don't or shouldn't serve various practical ends. They always have and, I assume, always will. We have only to remember how in this country they provided preparation for successively the church, the state, the empire, and so on, quite leaving aside more recent roles. But what is interesting in the history is that that was never all they did. And if you simply wanted to have an employment training agency and a little industrial research, then you would never try to set up an institution as complicated as a modern university. Now, confining our focus for the moment just to universities in Britain, I do think it's important to be realistic in recognizing what functions higher educations in this country actually now perform. Perhaps the most striking single statistic with which I can bring home to you the pace and scale of recent change is to say that nearly two-thirds of the roughly 130 university-level institutions in Britain today did not exist as universities as recently as two decades ago. And with this expansion have gone dramatic changes in the character of our universities. At present, over five times as many students in British universities study business studies and accounting as study English, the most popular humanities subject. Over six times as many are doing courses in practical subjects allied to medicine as in history, and so on. And for the most part, the largest numbers of students are to be found in the least traditional universities. Leaving aside the Open University, which is obviously a certain kind of special case, 18 of the 24 largest institutions in Britain in terms of student numbers in 2010 did not exist as universities before 1992. As I said, I think this expansion has in principle been a great democratic good, but it has obviously complicated public perception of universities. And at the same time, we've seen a dizzying growth in the costs of big science and of the share of university budgets now taken up by science, engineering, and medicine. In the most research-intensive Russell Group universities, these subjects alone now count for almost five-sixths of the university's turnover. So when we talk about the nature and purposes of universities, or when we discuss assessment methods and funding regimes, we have to be, I think, realistic about these characteristics of the present system. Mass education, a lot of vocational preparation, and big science are the dominant realities and are here to stay. But however important these features are, they too are not the whole story. 
And one way to begin to think about the distinctiveness of universities is to say that they provide a partly protected space within which trying to extend and deepen human understanding has priority over any other purposes in a way which would be madness, or at the very least disruptive, for other institutions in society even to countenance. Now, I'm not suggesting, I hope it's unnecessary to say, that good thinking is only done or can only be done in universities. Clearly not. But universities are, I think, the only institutions where pursuing such thinking is in principle not subordinate to some other purpose. And as a result, there's been, throughout their long history, a constant tension between the practical ends which society thinks it is furthering by founding or supporting universities and the ineluctable pull towards open-ended inquiry which comes to shape these institutions over time. The very open-endedness of their principal activities threatens to legitimate forms of inquiry that may run counter to the aims of those who founded or supported them. In fact, one begins to wonder whether societies do not make a kind of Faustian pact when they set up universities. They ask them to serve various practical purposes, but if they're to be given the intellectual freedom necessary to serve those purposes properly, they will always tend to exceed or subvert those purposes. Now, I find the history of universities very interesting in this respect. One of the lessons to be drawn from that history is that subjects that were initially introduced for broadly practical purposes have outlived those purposes and gone on to establish themselves as scholarly disciplines in their own right. This, it could be said, is in some respects the story even of classics. In its long journey from preparation for clerical or political office through the centuries in which it served to hallmark a gentleman and on to its current standing as the favoured example of a so-called useless subject. But something similar might be said about history, seen by its Victorian champions as a practical training for statesmen and administrators, but now, of course, a central academic subject with a large number of subdisciplines, or indeed of subjects such as Oriental languages or anthropology, devised to train the colonial administrator in the first instance, but now elaborated into a number of enterprises defined in purely scholarly terms. And perhaps we see something broadly similar at work in our own day with subjects such as social policy or education, which initially became subjects for teaching and research with severely practical ends in view, but which have, of course, now spawned all the disciplinary paraphernalia of theoretical debate, dedicated journals, and so on. So through all this expansion of scope and function, I think a fundamental tension has been discernible in the rationale of universities, and it still is. Put most simply, the imperative to pursue the fuller understanding of any subject matter once it was established as part of an academic discipline constantly tended to exceed and subvert the imperative to meet immediate or local needs. Chairs could be established in, say, law in order to train future lawyers. But the inquiries some of these professors then pursued led them to fundamental questions about the nature of authority or the history of different social ideals or the acceptable limits of free expression and many similar topics. And professors of law were constantly turning into legal historians and legal philosophers and even social theorists more broadly. As many of you will know, much of the 19th century's thinking about the evolution of types of society was conducted by those appointed to teach law. And these subdisciplines then became recognized parts of the syllabus, and the whole subject became over time more recognizably 
academic, a tricky word, a loaded word, but one which here suggests the pull away from the practical to forms of inquiry with their own protocols and ambitions. The same drift, I think, is evident in the history of the science faculties so often established with the hope of benefiting local industry through inventions and other technological advances, but in time passing over into what is now often called blue skies research, inquiries driven by the intellectual logic of the discipline rather than by the imperative to address an immediate practical problem. And that brief historical sketch, I think, begins to suggest why these institutions are so problematic for their host societies. And this pattern also, it seems to me, highlights one of the key differences between universities and superficially similar organisms, such as the research and development arms of commercial companies or various political and pressure group think tanks. Institutions of these kinds pursue inquiry into a topic, but for a strictly practical purpose, defined by external criteria. And if inquiry no longer serves that purpose, then it is usually abandoned. Moreover, they are not interested in what we might call second-order inquiries, into the boundaries of the topic, or the character of the vocabulary being employed, or the status of the knowledge produced. One mark of an academic discipline is that such second-order inquiries can never be deemed illegitimate or irrelevant in advance. And when reflection is free to proceed without the imperative to contribute to a specific external purpose, such second-order questions inevitably start to exert their seductive attraction. And this point could be brought into conjunction with another feature of the history of higher education in this country, Namely, the tendency for institutions which were set up to provide some kind of alternative to the model of existing universities, such as the early civic universities in the late 19th century, or the colleges of advanced technology in the 1950s and 60s, or the so-called new or plate-glass universities of the 1960s, or indeed in more recent times, the polytechnics. All these institutions have come over time to adopt many of the features of the dominant model. That is to say, the move has normally been towards being national rather than local institutions, residential, supporting a full spectrum of academic subjects, and sustaining research and postgraduate work as well as undergraduate. So the pattern, I think, both of disciplinary and of institutional development exhibit features of what has been called academic drift. And clearly, it's not just the self-interest or professional ambition of individual scholars which brings this about, but something more fundamental to the character of intellectual inquiry itself. Now I, <clears throat> excuse me, now, I suspect that among the public at large, there is more instinctive recognition that unfettered intellectual inquiry of this kind is central to what universities are about than is normally allowed in these discussions and that therefore there's potentially a much greater reservoir of interest in and latent appreciation of the work of universities than the narrow and defensive <coughs> official discourse about economic growth ever succeeds in tapping into. In talking to audiences outside universities, some of whom of course may be graduates, I'm struck by the level of curiosity about and enthusiasm for ideas and the quest for greater understanding whether in history and literature or physics and biology or any number of other fields. Now, of course, some members of these audiences may not have had the chance to study these things themselves, but they may very much want their children to do so. 
Or they may have had only limited and perhaps not altogether happy experiences of higher education in their own lives, but have now discovered a keen amateur reading interest in these subjects, and so on. But such audiences, it seems to me, do not only want to be told that universities can produce employable graduates, or indeed how much they contribute to the GDP. Our fellow citizens, I think, are also susceptible to questions about the importance of ideas and the attraction of extending understanding, hearing about other places and other times, hearing language used more accurately or more evocatively than in the workaday world, and I think want to know that somewhere human understanding is being pressed to its limits, unconstrained for the moment by immediate practical outcome. Of course, these audiences are not all of one mind, and not all sections of society are equally well represented among these audiences. Various points in their lives, they have other priorities, and there will always be other demands on their interests and sympathies. But it's noticeable, and isn't it regrettable, that this appeal features so little in the public discourse about universities in the last few years in this country. That is to say that the appreciation on the part of our fellow citizens that there should be places where these kinds of inquiries are pursued at their highest level. And part of the problem, of course, may be that while universities are spectacularly good at producing new forms of understanding, they're not always very good at explaining what they're doing when they do this. Now, of course, we do also have to acknowledge that in practice, contemporary universities do not perform some of their distinctive tasks all that well. Not to acknowledge this, I think, would be yet again, from another angle, to underestimate the uh, intelligence of the public who are well aware that all is not well with some of our overcrowded, overregulated institutions of higher education. Now, I don't, uh, despite what you might think if you ever read a review of my book, I don't underestimate the expense of these institutions or presume that there is any God-given right for them to be lavishly funded. The case for their value and their importance needs to be made. But it needs to be made in appropriate terms. And these terms are not chiefly, and they're certainly not exclusively, economic. They are also intellectual, educational, cultural, scientific, and so on. And in addition, it has to be emphasized that higher education is a public as well as a private good. It is not simply a set of private benefits for those who happen to participate in it. And therefore, I think it's a mistake, and it's a mistake on the part of those of us who would wish to speak up for universities as much as anyone else, a mistake to allow the case for universities to be represented as a merely sectional or self-interested cause on the part of current students and current academic staff. Now, the sense in which we have had in Britain for half a century or more a public rather than a private system of higher education is, I think, not entirely straightforward. It's not a matter simply of where the bulk of the funding comes from. And therefore, it's not immediately obvious how fundamental a change to that status the new policy on undergraduate fees will make. The government, of course, says that it is continuing to invest large sums in supporting undergraduate education, but that this funding is now to be routed through loans rather than direct grants to the institutions. But is this a little like saying that there should be no more public subsidy to, say, the British Museum or through the licence fee of the BBC, and that instead the government will loan to any citizen who wants to use those services a sum equivalent to the charges that those institutions would then be forced to make to their users. There 
Maybe arguments on both sides about these matters, but surely in public perception, such a change would make a big difference to whether we thought of, say, the British Museum as any kind of public body, especially if those vouchers could also be spent in alternative venues that were run entirely for profit. One of the consequences, I think, of the current perceived public status has, certainly over the past 50 years at least, been a greater sense of public entitlement and belief that admission to a university should depend only on intellectual aptitude. Of course, there have been debates in the past decade or more about access, and these suggest that there may be class advantages involved in this, as of course there are. But clearly, this criticism presumes and reinforces the standing of the general principle. There is no general social acceptance in this country at present, at present excuse me, of the idea that one should simply be able to buy a place at a university. In fact, it's a curious and I think rather little remarked fact that in Britain today, entrance to a university is one of the few widely desired social goods that cannot be straightforwardly bought. Money can buy you a better house than other people. Money can buy you health care. Money can even buy your children a better school education. And in each of these cases, it's a simple cash transaction. And our society apparently feels no shame about any of this. The advertisements for private schools make very clear the advantages your child will get, including the improved exam results, if you can afford the high school fees. But money cannot directly, at the moment, buy you a better university place for your child or indeed a place at all, apart from, at the thus far, very marginal private universities whose recruitment pattern suggests that they have not become the institution of choice for most British students. And it would, I believe, still be generally thought quite unacceptable for a place at a selective university to be awarded on the grounds that the applicant was the child of either an alumnus or a donor. Though we must remember amid so much selective citing of US models, that both of these are explicitly acknowledged categories of intake at the most prestigious American private universities and colleges. So public, in this case, signals some idea of operating according to collectively agreed criteria that apply to the whole relevant population. I think it's very difficult to tell at this point just how far the new fee arrangement will modify or undermine this perception. The recent white paper's claim to put students at the heart of the system is unpersuasive in various ways, in part, of course, because they're there already. It would be more accurate to say that it tries to put the price mechanism at the heart of the system, where a university place then partly depends on what a customer is willing to pay for it. It becomes a transaction between a seller and a buyer. And this may be what will indicate a key move from public to private, despite continued public underwriting of the loan system. The introduction of for-profit providers into the system extends the logic of purchasing a university place even further, and it will be interesting to see how far erstwhile public institutions may feel impelled to move in this direction in the future, including differential fees for different subjects and discounts for early completion. Another way to look at the operation of this public-private distinction might be to think of a public rather than a private model of graduate contribution. Let's suppose for a moment, and I should make clear it's not the practicalities of this that interest me here, but how it illustrates that division, 
Let's suppose for a moment that graduates were going to be asked to make retrospective payments to a national higher education fund rather than to pay fees up front to a particular university. Now, this could involve the same amount of money as they will contribute under the new system, and it could involve calibrating payments to earnings in the same way, up to a fixed level. But it would, of course, represent a different principle, as well as possibly being cheaper and simpler to run. In this imagined model, graduates would contribute to the maintenance of a national higher education system, not pay for a product from an individual service provider. Now, as I say, I'm not concerned with the practical advantages or disadvantages of this, and of course we should recognize that many universities might reject it because they would fear that they would have less control over future income. And anyway, the so-called top universities may believe that they have more to gain from the government's model, since it's a model that, like all market models, rewards the already advantaged. But the key difference, and this I think is surely part of the government's thinking from the other side, the key difference would be that my imagined scheme would not subject universities to the same kind of notional market discipline as does dependence by each individual institution on fees paid directly to them by individual students. And this is, again, I think, another aspect of that key dividing line between public and private as far as perception of British universities is concerned. After all, in my imagined model, there would be more room for collective long-term planning about how to direct the expenditure of the system as a whole to protect the public interest in, for example, maintaining certain types of subject provision. And in my view, and I feel entitled to say this here since I've recently said it to a room full of vice-chancellors, in my view, there's been too little concern in the current debates with the values represented by a national system of higher education as a whole and too much concern about the competitive advantages which particular mission groups or individual universities think they may gain. Now, a common element to many of the politically fashionable ways of making universities accountable is that what are, in fact, well-meant attempts to demonstrate the relevance of universities to society's needs can end up by being counterproductive. And the core of the problem here, I think, lies in trying to move too quickly from the activities carried on in universities to the benefits society can be seen to derive from them. Versions of this mistake are evident in, for example, the misconceived impact criterion in the new research excellence framework. Of course it's essential that a persuasive case should be made for the benefits society receives from scientific and scholarly research. But it has to be recognized that these are, for the most part, necessarily indirect and long-term. Similarly, in the discussion about the relations between universities and local businesses, it has to be recognized, I think, that the most fruitful relationships, and certainly this is the view of those who speak for many of the local businesses, arise where university departments concentrate on doing the kinds of research they're good at doing, rather than attempting to guess the current and perhaps temporary needs of particular businesses and then shaping their research to meet them. And again, it's frequently been pointed out that the leading employers do not necessarily want graduates who have been given some narrow training which is intended to equip them for one particular kind of job. Such jobs and their demands change rapidly, and such graduates tend to be too narrow in their perspectives and too rigid in their thinking. Graduate who's profited from an intellectually rigorous and culturally extending education will, such employers recognize, serve their needs far better in the long run. 
So in all these cases, what I'm suggesting is society actually obtains the greatest benefits from universities by encouraging them to concentrate on doing the things they're particularly good at and not trying to turn them into some form of company laboratory or immediate apprenticeship scheme. And this also suggests to me that those of us in universities should not be perhaps quite so defensive as many have been. Surely more is to be gained by everyone if universities explain in their own terms the character of what they do and why it is significant and worthwhile, rather than repeating a discourse which tends to the reductive and short-termist. But of course the larger problem with so much of current public discussion about universities, although not about universities alone, is the category mistake that's made when we try to justify intellectual activities in terms derived from another set of categories altogether. Categories drawn from the instrumental world, say, of commerce and industry. Now, one could illustrate the pervasive nature of this by considering the parallel logic of the following three statements. One, I like going walking in the Lake District because it boosts gross domestic revenue from tourism. Two, I decided to have children because the economy of tomorrow will need an adaptable workforce. Three, it's good for students to read great works of literature because they acquire the skills needed to manage a manufacturing company. And talking of literature, it's usually at about this point in the argument that an appearance is made by one of the more bizarre and exotic products of the human imagination, a wholly fictional place called the real world. Now this <laughs> sumptuously improbable fantasy is quite unlike the actual world you and I live in. In the actual world we're familiar with, there are all kinds of different people doing different things, taking pleasure in their work or expressing themselves or falling in love or telling themselves that if they didn't laugh they'd cry or wondering what it's all about and so on. But this invented realm called the real world is inhabited exclusively by hard-faced robots who devote themselves single-mindedly to the task of making money. They work and then they die. Actually, in the fictional accounts of the real world that I've read, they don't ever seem to mention dying, perhaps because they're afraid that if they did, it might cause the robots to stop working for a bit and start expressing themselves and falling in love and wondering what it was all about and so on. And then, of course, the real world wouldn't seem as special anymore. It'd be just like the ordinary old world that we're used to. So personally, I've never been able to take this so-called real world very seriously. It's obviously the brainchild of cloistered businessmen living in their ivory factories and out of touch with the kinds of things that matter to ordinary people like you and me. I think they should get out more. So instead of falling back into this narrow conception of universities, I want to encourage us to take the long view, to consider what it is that we value and admire about good work in scholarship and science, and then to reflect on the conditions which seem conducive to its achievement. Universities, as I've said, are not quite the only places where such work is done, even now. But they unquestionably represent much the biggest concentration of such inquiry. And it may be that public discussion of universities sometimes focuses too narrowly on the undergraduate teaching role, seeing them perhaps as bigger and more sophisticated sixth-form colleges. That role is, of course, central to nearly all universities. But it's far from being the whole story, as I don't need to say, in this institution above all, perhaps. Major universities are complex organisms, 
fostering an extraordinary variety of intellectual, scientific and cultural activity and the significance and value of much that goes on within them cannot be restricted to a single national framework or to the present generation. They've become an important medium, perhaps, as I said, the single most important institutional medium for conserving, understanding, extending and handing on to subsequent generations the intellectual, scientific and artistic heritage of mankind. In thinking about the conditions necessary for their flourishing, therefore, I do not think we should take too purely local or short-term a view. And adopting this wider perspective may also help us become a little more aware of the limitations of treating economic growth as automatically the overriding test of value. Taking a longer-term view of the history and the future of universities encourages us to ask fundamental questions about this goal of contributing to national economic prosperity. For example, how much prosperity do we need and who counts as we? Is it desirable at any cost? What is it in its turn good for? And so on. And any serious attempt to address these questions, I think, will inevitably have to invoke non-economic values. And most people, as I've suggested, recognize the standing of such values in their own lives. They don't care for their partners or their children in order to generate a profit any more than they admire a beautiful view or a natural wonder because it increases employment. But I think it has become difficult to appeal to such values in a public sphere whose discourse is chiefly framed by the combination of individualism and instrumentalism. Universities are not just good places in which to undertake such fundamental questioning. They embody an alternative set of values in their very rationale. So I've tried to write a book in order to argue this case at greater length. The first half of the book, I try to rehearse the arguments for universities as a public good and for understanding their distinctive history. Then, in the second half, I change gear. Uh, government policy, I don't need to tell anyone in this room, towards universities has been subject to lively debate in the past couple of decades. And the uh, chapters in the second half of my book engage with this debate on matters such as bibliometry, impact, and recent undergraduate funding proposals. But they do so, I like to think, uh, as a way of suggesting some more constructive starting points for current discussion. As I've said, I think that in general, academics do need to make this case to a wide general public. And the first half of the book tries to do that on, you might say, the university's own terms, while the second part engages more directly with external views on the part of, say, government or business. Who is it addressed to and what do I hope it will achieve? Well, it's uh, partly addressed to you. It's addressed to anyone interested in the questions of universities today. It's certainly not aimed principally at other academics or just at policy makers. And it's written in, I hope, a lively enough style, but you'll tell me about that if it's not. Um, and although the book draws on years of reading and thinking about universities and their history, it's not intended to be primarily an academic work. Uh, there are no footnotes at the bottom of the page and all those other giveaway signs. So, it's aimed, in my view, at any intelligent citizen who wants to understand what's at stake in debates about universities. And I hope that it may interest such readers and thus help move the debate away from the current excessively narrow concentration on questions that I've identified. Let me end with one very general reflection. 
Having witnessed the scenes outside Parliament in November 2010, no one would be likely to underestimate the enormous importance of the symbolic aspect of current policy changes, whatever view one takes of their actual benefits or drawbacks. What is perceived as a very substantial shift from a form of public funding to a form of individual funding is bound to be read as signalling a loss of belief in the public as opposed to the individual value of higher education, even if ministers and others repeatedly affirm that this is not the case. If the language we use to talk about universities represents them as being principally institutions that provide vocational training for employment and the application of technology to promoting economic growth, and if the language we use about students represents them as being consumers who shop in the educational supermarket purely for what provides the most remunerative future job at the lowest cost, then those are the kinds of universities and the kind of education we shall end up with. It's therefore, I think, very important that we should try to articulate a different and more adequate conception of what universities are for, because otherwise we risk damaging, or even in some cases destroying, the defining characteristics of universities and what's made them so valuable to humanity in its search for fuller and deeper understanding. Attending to this idea may help remind us, amid distracting circumstances, that we are indeed merely custodians for the present generation of a complex intellectual inheritance which we did not create and which is not ours to destroy. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Few speakers who can be both uplifting and uh, depressors at the same time, but I think you've probably achieved that. I'm happy to take some, some questions. I'll probably take them groups of questions, sir. I know, I know, but I need to take uh, several questions. I'll, if I can take them from different parts of the room, that'd be even better. Okay, I'll go one, two, three. Let's have your question first. I was just going to think this through a little bit uh, because it's part of a comment and part of a, a question. I'm, I'm doing a PhD at UCL and I've just seen the fees coming in, uh, the large fees, uh, and I'm watching um, where money is being spent and it seems to me there's a lot of money being spent on uh, things which are superfluous to education in terms of like furniture and uh, ill-performing, energy-guzzling buildings um, rather than education. And also they're beginning to charge additional fees for courses which are compulsory for students in addition to the fees which are now being levy levied. Um, I was actually on one of the marches in 2010 and I saw what, uh, how it was uh, controlled with the uh, police uh, it was absolutely horrifying. Um, I think it just seems to me that what's actually happening here is a full-scale attack on democracy. I mean, that's, that sounds a bit melodramatic, but it looks pretty bad from where I'm sitting. Thank, thank you. Um, I was warming to much of what you said, nearly all of what you said, except the bit about regulation. I cannot accept 
that the uh, that universities are overregulated, given that the architecture of the regulatory framework was designed by the universities and is owned by the universities largely. Uh, I wouldn't mind a little bit more about that, please. Please, the third question here. Yes, the question is, um, how has the power of institutional racism, which is the same as white supremacy, impacted on what universities are for in the past? And how could the power of institutional racism, which is the same as white supremacy, impact what universities are for in the future? Yeah, there's a nice bunch for you. <laughs> yes, they don't exactly cluster, do they? Um, no. Okay, let me try and take them uh, in turn, your um, question in the front here. Um, what you mention is noticing that um, the increased fees, or some part of it, are being spent on things which don't seem very directly, perhaps as uh, favouring education. Um, in my own view, this is one of the um, most uh, worrying aspects of the form of competition which we're told we ought to see between institutions because I think what you might infer from elsewhere in the world is that the competition takes the form of what one university president in the United States called an amenities arms race. Uh, that is to say that there is a lot of emphasis on, and a lot of expenditure, therefore, on things to do with um, lifestyle and facilities um, to attract students who are said to be um, attracted by competing universities and not so much on uh, the actual central task of education in itself. Um, we shall have to see, uh, like you, uh, I myself am not in favor of these changes and I uh, suspect that we shall see uh, various other aspects of universities uh, have a, an increasing share of this increasing pot of money, um, partly because, of course, it will bring with it so many other forms of advertising and so many uh, other forms of marketing, which themselves have to be paid for out of these fees. Um, just one very quick remark about your second point about what seemed to you an attack on democracy. Um, I would say, clear to everybody here, I'm not in favor of the current uh, proposed, well, actual changes now, um, but I my, speaking for myself, I won't presume to speak for you, but I think we should be careful that these are the policies of an elected government which has considerable appeal in the electorate. And we should think very carefully about whether we think we are being, as it were, um, hoodwinked by some small conspiracy, or whether, in fact, uh, this isn't something to do with very large sociological changes in our society which make these policies seem more attractive to voters and therefore which put a big burden on us, I think, to try to justify some alternative view. Um, I think the manner, as you say, in which some of these things were done, uh, in, especially in November and December 2010, wouldn't bear very close scrutiny. But in general, I myself am a little cautious of seeing all this as an attack on democracy since it's, uh, in part, the expression of democracy. Um, your question, uh, you picked up on the phrase I used about overregulated and suggested that this is something which um, academics have imposed on themselves anyway. Uh, I have to say I don't agree with that. 
uh, I think there's been a very common sequence where a particular requirement is first announced and then various bodies, which are often staffed by academics or sometimes ex-academics, are charged with giving it expression and application and they, in turn, consult more widely. And they then say, this is what the sector chose for itself. Well, it isn't. It's what the sector tried to modify as best it could under duress, I think. Um, I don't think anyone in the humanities necessarily thinks that the form of the requirements, for example, for the successive research assessment exercises have been beneficial or appropriate to the humanities. Not because there may not be a perfectly good case uh, for deciding ways of distributing or even concentrating research funding, but because there has been a kind of bureaucratic uniformity there which has uh, distorted the activities of those doing research in the humanities. I take that example, one of course close to my heart. Um, but so I'm not so persuaded that this is something which academics have simply done to themselves. Uh, and I think at each turn we see that um, there's not often been very much room for manoeuvre. Um, I'll be very brief with uh, your question uh, over there. I would only say I don't claim any expertise on this, but I think we should not lose sight of the fact that, not always consistently, uh, they could in various occasions have done better, but by and large, universities have been good spaces for free speech and for the combating of racism in most of our societies, rather than the main, as it were, carriers or enforcers of it. I don't for a moment defend anything that might be thought to be institutional racism in any of these institutions, but I think we should not lose sight of the fact that they've actually contributed to the cause of equality and liberation as well. I will stop there on that subject. There's a question there. Stimulating. Oh, sorry. Um, sorry, that was a compliment. I oh, you better, you better say it again out loud. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, there is a but. I don't think I've heard you use the word knowledge. And what I would like to know is really how you define the kind of knowledge that higher education specifically uh, uh, tries to transmit and inspire and extend. And the reason I say this is that I think it is actually very difficult uh, to defend universities without falling into what you yourself described as a trap of sectional self-interest. Whereas if you ask what, a, what is higher education for, perhaps one gets closer to the process. Thank you. And there's a question in the middle. Two observations, if I might, and then a quick question. Um, first observation is that it might be interesting, worthwhile to put your provocative talk in an even wider context, that of the very lively debate that's going on all across the world as to the character and purposes and future of universities. Um, this is a debate that many countries are wrestling with. Um, and the second observation is that out of that debate, much of which has been um, contributed to by the academic community, a very large number of ideas about the future roles and possibilities of universities are developing. Um, I've identified something like 40 to 50 different ideas for the future of universities um, in, in the world. Um, and this is to say that I think, if I can say so, 
your characterization of a sharp divide between, as it were, an academic view of universities and the state's view of universities, if I might say so um, gently, is a little too blunt, is a little too, um, uh, too black and white. Um, I think, and then my question is simply then out of those reflections as to whether or not we don't, as part of the academic community, have a responsibility to try to start working very, very hard in its jolly hard work to think of future roles and purposes and forms that universities might take uh, for the 21st century. Okay, thank you. Um, let me return to your question here uh, first. Um, in the book, I try to uh, explain why I find the term understanding a better one to use than knowledge. And one of the reasons, I won't try and repeat uh, everything from the book, but one of the reasons that is, I think, that it focuses attention on the fact that it's a human activity. The understander comes into it in a way in which knowledge can sometimes seem to suggest something that people discover and is some kind of cut and dried and out there. Um, now, that being the case, I, you, you challenged me to say something about the uh, distinctive contribution that higher education makes, especially perhaps with undergraduate education in this matter. And it seems to me that one of the things that it um, constantly, at least at its best, encourages is what you might call the relativizing of existing understanding calling it into question in some way, standing back from it, taking a comparative perspective on it, challenging the terms which we take for granted or whatever, in a way in which for lots of other tasks and perfectly legitimately for those other tasks, the role is simply to transmit an, as it were, fixed body of technique or practice or information. Those are good things to do when that's appropriate. But I think the distinctive thing that universities do is, as it were, engender reflection on that packet of information and on the premises of it and start to connect it then with a wider world of understanding uh, in ways which I think are actually seamless. Um, just to say uh, on um, your first observation, the gentleman over there, um, I entirely agree uh, that there's a great deal of reflection and um, indeed anxiety, public debate about this across the world. I touch on it very briefly in the book, but uh, not particularly tonight. Um, I should also say, as you, by the sound of it, may know as well as I do, that a great many other countries, especially in Europe, are watching the debate in Britain with uh, very close attention and a good deal of anxiety, um, having themselves thought for a long time of the British university system as one uh, to be on the whole admired. They are now anxious about what will happen to it, and anxious whether this doesn't indicate the route down which their own governments may very shortly go. And I think we do see um, a certain pattern, uh, at least across Europe, in that respect. Um, but let me also turn to, and you, you, you put your point uh, extremely gently, thank you, but I recognize the point uh, in itself, whether I don't, uh, as it were, make too sharp a distinction between um, what we might call the official thinking here and thinking about universities in the ways that an academic like me might regard as more uh, adequate or appropriate. Uh, I expect I do. And one reason I do is because uh, what I've been writing on this is by way of polemic. And polemic has its own energy and its own uh, purpose. And it's often to try to displace or challenge 
what seem to be the categories that dominate public debate in this country at the moment about this. Um, when in other forums we're having, as it were, a seminar on universities, the variety of types across the world, and what we might expect from them and how they might change, it seems to me uh, absolutely obligatory to think about those in a very nuanced way, acknowledge the variety of them, and see ways in which um, public policy could be beneficial to them. Uh, by and large, writing a piece in uh, a current broadsheet or whatever when there's some um, piece of legislation on the table, uh, that hasn't, it seemed to me, seemed the most pressing thing to do. But I entirely agree with you that we need to think about future forms of universities, which will happen in lots of ways anyway, including, of course, the whole question of how far the, what you might broadly call the uh, internet or electronic revolution will challenge the whole physical locatedness of universities and the methods that they've used for their teaching and research up to now. These are huge questions uh, which will change universities whether, whether people like you or I have bright ideas about them or not. I think you were next. Um, I want you in a sense pick up the first question which was very much about estates spending in what becomes a response to the uh, global higher education market. And I, I think that you've uh, mischaracterized the forces within universities by perceiving the university to itself to be motivated by a sense of community of scholarship and the external forces to trigger it in the uh, direction of commodification of education. I wonder how you could uh, try to, uh, on a positive note, encourage within universities some more uh, balanced view in favor of the, the community of scholarship and to withstand the inevitable pressures on investment in infrastructure if institutions are going to want to have their own state. I'll take one more question for you, sir. Going out or universities going out, making the case for understanding the value given uh, what we do. I saw what you're thinking about the audiences for that, in particular our students, our undergraduate students, as an audience for us making the case for what we do, because the government policy is put students at the centre of the criteria for funding students and all the rest of it. And so, and at the same time, students' expectations are precisely the I'll take those two questions now for me. Um, first of all, I, I don't think I have very much to say on your, your interesting question about um, what might be done, as it were, more internally. Um, 
I think anyone who has any connection with university these days, whether teacher, student, or working in an administrative or other capacity, is very aware that um, they have been transformed in the last two or three decades in their internal structure and governance very dramatically. There may be lots of reasons for this that are common to many institutions uh, in this country. I mean, we only have to think about things like proliferation of health and safety and other regulations which necessarily require a certain amount of oversight and enforcement and so on. Um, but also what, what has happened is that we've seen, I think, by and large, the much greater growth of a career managerial role rather than the role of senior academics taking a turn at leading and chairing a form of self-governance. There are pros and cons to this, and it may be that the scale of some of the uh, business that has to be transacted in a loose sense, the processes that have to be engaged with now, is going to make this inevitable. But I think that is part of where there has been a loss. Um, and one of the ways, at least, where maybe I differ from some of my colleagues in this respect, um, but where I do not think that academics, and especially I could say, <laughs> having reached this great age, senior academics, um, should uh, assume that their role is to teach and do their research and have no concern for the functioning and running of the institution. Uh, that seems to me to um, precisely be to abdicate the responsibility for making it a place that is conducive to academic values and to hand that on to another generation. And so I would actually like to see more uh, of senior academics taking these roles rather than professional um, managers doing so. Um, now, your question uh, about audiences and especially about students is, goes very close for me because this has preoccupied me a great deal in the last couple of years. Um, and I agree uh, with most of uh, what you said in asking the question. Uh, first, let me just say that there is, of course, a danger for for me, I won't say necessarily for you, but for uh, an academic talking about this subject, in some way presuming to know things about students that I can't know, and to be sounding as though I'm condescending or patronizing to what students ought to want or are supposed to want. I think we should be very cautious about that, and students are more than capable of speaking for themselves on a great many of these matters. Um, but you touched on the word that, of course, has been central to um, some of the supporting arguments for the government's changes, which is the question of student satisfaction. And here it does seem to me is a place where uh, it would be right for academics in universities to engage with students explicitly over what student satisfaction should mean in a university course. Um, and as I've tried to say at a bit more length elsewhere, what it may mean is a good deal of dissatisfaction at certain moments because education should be in some ways a dissatisfying experience until you uh, make certain steps forward. Uh, I don't think that many of the things measured and which will be now even more measured by various kinds of surveys and so on are the heart of what really uh, an education gives a student and therefore what ought to be in some life context the most satisfying thing about it. They will be some of these more peripheral things that I was talking about um, earlier to do with amenities and other aspects of the uh, what the institution offers. Um, so I think we should engage with students about this and recognize that they themselves have very sophisticated views about it um, and try to distinguish as best we can from the perspective we as academics have 
what seems to us absolutely vital that students engage with, which is not um, necessarily finding things easy or automatically getting high degrees for it or anything else, and trying to persuade students of the significance of that. I don't think we should back away from that task. I know there are, there are two questions here. Uh, let's have the man in the, the back, you first, and then I think one at the back, you've been waiting a, a long time. If you can have those two. Uh, thank you. Um, first of all, thanks very much for your series of interventions over recent years, which have been um, very important, I think. I was intrigued in your talk tonight by your use of the phrase, this country. And I wondered which one you were referring to. Yes, good, um, good I, I'm director of the Open University in Wales in my uh, day job, I should add. Um, I think one can mount a persuasive case that uh, certainly in Scotland uh, and also in Wales to a large extent that there is a, a somewhat different notion around democratic intellect um, which means that, that the trajectory of higher education has been rather different, uh, particularly in Scotland, obviously of ancient uh, tradition and so on. Um, that's not to say that governments in those countries don't also have instrumental visions for HE at present, of course. But I wanted to ask a question about different definitions of public good. And it seems to me that one can mount a very persuasive case, and, and perhaps you've done this, and you certainly mount a, a spirited defense of elitism in, in actual fact in a progressive way in your book. But you can mount a, it's possible to mount a persuasive case uh, around public good which, in which one ends up with a university system uh, which is still predominantly based around um, young full-time undergraduates and so on. Whereas certainly in Scotland, in Wales, but also in England through people like Edward Thompson, Raymond Williams, his time at your institution, uh, and the adult education movement, there's been a democratic impulse which has been around widening access in, in terms of dissemination, indeed production and dissemination of knowledge, which is a, a rather more progressive, I would say, and radical vision around um, that, that, that production dem dissemination. I'm just wondering where you see, if you accept it, of course, where you see that kind of democratic recurring impulse fitting into the contemporary debates. And, and I think, actually, I'll come back to you later, but there's a man at the back who's been waiting a long time, if I can have him, and I'll come back to you in the next round. Just picking up your earlier point about... Um, any international examples, really? Are there any kind of cautionary tales or best practice that you can share with us from a kind of an international perspective, please? Okay, <clears throat> thank you. Um, first of all, thank you. Um, very important corrective to any loose use of this country. Um, I should say that I've um, actually um, been involved in the Scottish debates about this, and. Um, I find the um, character and assumptions appealed to in Scottish public debate about this very heartening. And uh, it, it seems to me that it, if, if we are prone to lose heart about the possibility of um, mounting a persuasive case to our fellow citizens, then the Scottish model is in some ways encouraging about this. Um, on the other hand, we don't have the history uh, and the social history that, that fed that model, and we can't create it overnight. Um, but I think the, I mean, you use the phrase of um, George Davies' famous book, The Democratic Intellect, and I think uh, that partly has that purchase in Scotland because it has had a genuinely much more democratic system of higher education for much, much longer, uh, and that matters in terms of mobilizing public support for it. 
Um, so I, I entirely agree with that. And it was very interesting when I was talking at this debate in Scotland. It was just before their election last May. Um, and the, all the well-informed commentators said that no major party, which meant actually Scottish Nationalists or Labour in Scotland, no major party would come out in favour of fees on the English model in its manifesto, and indeed did not and have not. Um, so I think one thing we should just think about is that there is a kind of comparative higher education experiment going on now on either side of the border, because we've yet to see how either of these um, arrangements will pan out. But they are, at the moment, working on very different principles. Um, your second point um, about, as it were, the um, perhaps not your word, but the more participatory aspects of adult education and how that relates to the um, more traditional forms of the university that I was mainly talking about here tonight. Um, I can only say that I entirely recognize the description of, and indeed have always much admired it and those who have worked in it in that way. I don't myself see why that should be so different from what goes on in um, our universities. Um, just for one thing, of course, we have to be clear, I expect most people here realize this, but um, the model of the 18 or 19-year-old student going for a three-year residential single honors degree course is becoming not the majority model in this country. Um, people are engaging in higher education at many different stages of their lives, and all the better for it, I think. And therefore, the pattern of teaching and what we expect of people, what we prepare for them, uh, has to take account of that. And I think much of the, uh, the life, the vigor of the thinking that people like Williams and Thompson did came out of the fact that they were engaging with people who had other lives, other occupations, and so on. Um, but increasingly, that is, is already and is going to be the case, I think, with uh, established universities. And, and I would say all to the better. So if, if more of that spirit of uh, uh, engaging in a participatory way with other um, citizens who are themselves already uh, very experienced in their own walk of life is going to... Uh, come more and more into universities, that seems to me it would be a benefit. Um, <laughs> the, you asked me at the back for uh, any examples, uh, I'm not sure if you said cheering or otherwise, but uh, from in the uh, international scene about this, and it may be that others, like the gentleman over there, may um, know more about it than I do. But um, I would say just a couple of very quick things. One is, as I touched on just in a phrase in the lecture, uh, there's a great deal of invoking of the American model, some supposed American model, uh, and how um, it is said they have the greatest universities, and if we're more like them, we'll have great universities too, and so on. Um, I can only commend to you, if you haven't read already, a piece by my colleague from Oxford, Howard Hodson, uh, on the American parallel. Um, it is absolutely not a persuasive case to make to think that English British English education should go the direction that the um, American case is supposed to represent. And anyway, the American case is hugely diverse um, in types of institution uh, and so on. But the American example that I have found over the years most interesting in this respect is not um, picking out the Harvards and Princetons and Stanfords of this world, but is the uh, public higher education system of the state of California which was deliberately, as you may know, um, designed by Clark Kerr and others in the 1950s and 1960s to embrace uh, levels of institution 
uh, including uh, institutions which uh, do uh, something much better than we've historically done in Britain about second chance and mobility between um, stages of one's education or types of institution. Moving from community colleges to state universities and then moving from state university to the University of California system, which at its peak had two world-class universities and still does in Berkeley and UCLA. I think we have something uh, that we can brood on there, which uh, the invocation of Ivy League models is really not very helpful about. Um, but of course, um, when I was making the distinction or just drawing attention to the distinction between public and private, one of the things we should think about in terms of the European models is there we have something which has, in the case of um, France nationally, the case of Germany in, in terms of the, the lender or regions, uh, has been wholly a state-controlled and run system which has not been true of British universities. In France, they are the responsibility of the Minister for Education, and the Minister for Education puts his finger into many aspects of university pies. Um, we have had, by and large, an arm's length model about this. Um, and one of the anxieties, I think, is that um, rather than introducing, as a market is supposed to do, more autonomy, what in the very short term we're seeing is, in fact, rather more ministerial control over some aspects, both of research and of things like undergraduate entry. So I think there are other kinds of conclusions to draw from um, international comparisons by thinking about the... Um, the culture and history of the higher education system that they have. None of them is quite the same as the one we've had in Britain. Okay. You, please, and then you. Um, hello. I'm an undergraduate student here at the LSE, and you argued for the case of universities improving understanding very strongly, but personally I was surprised uh, by the lack of argument for the social role of universities, especially as an undergraduate. I have the impression the question is not so much what one studies, but where one studies. When talking to fellow undergraduates, uh, they usually talk about uh, their experiences, the social life, etc. So many uh, 18, 19 year olds choose to go to university also for the social experience. And so um, what we have is with these rising costs, which touch primarily undergraduates, many people deciding not to go to university because they're not exactly going there only for knowledge. And indeed, I think in America, um, online universities and open universities are, like, are uh, witnessing large growth in student numbers because of ridiculous undergraduate fees. Hi there. Um, I just wanted to uh, sort of push you to clarify what role you see for the new post-1992 universities, because you opened by supporting the expansion of higher education, but then you went on to sort of um, argue that higher education shouldn't be overly instrumental, vocational, business-oriented, and the fact is that it's the new universities that tend to do that um, an awful lot, especially in the courses uh, that they offer. So I just wondered what you think um, their, their role should be. Presumably you either think that there is a role for vocational business-oriented education but it shouldn't be done in, in universities so they should go back to being technical colleges or you think um, there isn't really a role for that and they should become sort of more, uh, more like traditional uh, universities. I just sort of wanted to push you to clarify what, what role you saw for them in the system. Okay, yeah. Um, Again, I'm not sure I have very much to say on this question. Um, I mean, you are obviously right that for a lot of people, um, 
thinking of becoming undergraduates, one of the things they're thinking about, or among the range of things they're thinking about, are a lot of social experiences which are not directly what goes on in the lecture hall or the classroom. Um, I, I, and I would admit here, I think, uh, um, perhaps, a, um, I don't know, an antipathy on my part, um, that the so-called um, character-forming argument of education, undergraduate education, um, has never, in fact, carried a great deal of persuasiveness for me. Um, I think that's been, in part, the leftover of a certain kind of um, residential and elitist model from the 19th century, which may have had its merits at the time, but which I don't particularly wish to encourage. And um, I think that if some of the um, social aspects and um, practical amenities of life fell away from some universities as a result of some of these changes, in my view, grouchy old man perhaps by this point, but uh, I wouldn't think that that's such a great loss and that might in indeed um, encourage people to focus on what it is they do want to get from university and maybe get some of their social experiences from elsewhere. Um, on your question, I mean, I have to try and be very brief here about um, post-1992 universities. <clears throat> Again, I would say something which is a little like uh, what I think I said to the person who was asking about students. Um, I feel for myself that I should be, and I think others should be, a little careful about generalizing about a category here, because the, these universities have developed in different ways, not all the same as each other. And though you say that they have, rightly say, um, that they have had a lot of courses which look primarily vocational, and I think that's true, and I think that um, traditional universities have had quite a few that look somewhat vocational too, and that's not, in my view, a bad thing if it's done in the right way. But what I would say is from my, and this is as much from reading and anecdotal experience, it's not from some systematic survey, uh, is that the development of those institutions in the last 20 years has been experienced by a lot of students in them and by a lot of people who teach in them as a real opening up of their opportunities intellectually, as a real opening of minds about how what might otherwise have seemed to be a really rather narrow technical training has uh, other kinds of interest attached to it, connects with other bits of the intellectual world and so on, without um, diminishing its use and uh, the eventual employability. I think the um, academic development of many of those institutions has brought something to it which seems to me characteristic of what universities do. And I would not, you ended by saying, you know, do I think they, some of these universities should be, as it were, redesignated technical colleges or something like that? Um, no, not at all. Um, and I think the current move by the government to um, make further education colleges cheap deliverers of higher education is actually a move in the wrong direction for that reason because further education colleges by and large are not able to do what I've just described post-1992 universities sometimes being able to do. Um, and that is, I think, to shift it away from uh, distinctively university education to something, something much narrower. But as I say, I do think that I at least should be cautious about this because the, the variety and the very complex ecology of institutions, 130-odd institutions in this country, this country, these countries alone now, um, uh, means that we can't necessarily put half of them in one single box.
Are there any more? Okay, there are. <laughs> two more. I think these probably have to be the last two. You please, and then you yes. go back. Um, we, we seem to be drifting as a nation, I should say England, I suppose, um, uh, sleepwalking really towards the uh, marketization of universities as a, a method of funding. Um, and um, for reasons that you've explained today and also in your excellent article in the London Review of Books is not desirable. Um, uh, students, our most talented youth, are going to be um, uh, saddled with debts, uh, maybe up to about £40,000, um, which will take a lifetime to pay off in the future, which to my mind is counterproductive, if not immoral. And um, the, um, the government is using um, as the main motivation for this uh, deficit reduction, but I think quite a lot of people have realized that the basis of that model is so flimsy that it's very unlikely to um, reduce um, the deficit at all in the long term. In fact, all that's happening is they're shifting costs from the current balance sheet down the line to about 35 years down, down uh, into the future. So the, future, the next generation is actually going to have to face the bill currently put out about 191 billion, I think. Um, so um, that, that reason for, um, for torpedoing, really, uh, the current universities um, has shown to be flawed. But my question really is, um, what is a good model for funding of universities? What would you say would be the way to do it? And one last question at the back, I think. Thank you, back. Uh, thank you. Um, firstly, permit me to be slightly unconventional. And uh, by a show of hands, who here is in some form influenced or involved with academics, whether they're a student or member of staff or a graduate? So by that, it looks quite a fair proportion of us are of that frame of mind. Uh, so how successful do you think your method of um, communicating what are universities for to the wider audience uh, do you think that would be? I think those are two good questions for you to okay. <laughs> conclude with. <coughs> I will try and conclude with. Well, um, to your point about um, marketization and um, deficit reduction. I mean, there are so many things to say, and I'll try and be very brief because it is, it is getting late. Um, just quickly to say that I think in addition to the whole question of the intergenerational injustice that may be being set up here, um, a key element of this change is not just the uh, question of people having to take out loans to pay fees, but the transforming of the relationship between student and university into one, as I said, uh, where there is supposed to be, we've yet to see it, competition in terms of price. Um, and that's going to have, I think, more other consequences than have entirely been focused on yet, uh, which, where the uh, uh, attention has, for understandable reasons, largely looked at the burden that's being placed on individuals in the future in the way that you've spelled out. But it's going to have, I think, much more ramifying other kinds of consequences. Um, in brief, the argument that this will reduce expenditure, I think, has been shown by um, the Higher Education Policy Institute and other uh, bodies that have done fairly disinterested analyses of this to be obviously wrong. It is not going to reduce expenditure. The trick, of course, is that it will seem to reduce the deficit in accounting terms because loans are assets rather than expenditure. 
And so although the amount that the government has to lay out will increase, and although by every uh, accountant's analysis that I've read, the government's projections for how much of it they will recover are wildly optimistic. There will be much more not recovered uh, on the RAB accounting um, mechanism. Nonetheless, they are presenting it as driven by the need for immediate deficit reduction. And I mean, I have to say, I've said it in print elsewhere, but surely um, the as it were, cradle of all this is to do with the comprehensive spending review in the summer of 2010. And we know now, I think, that the Brown Review Committee was apprised of what that comprehensive spending review was going to be and cut its cloth accordingly. Um, and to the gentleman at the back about um, my, <laughs> my, my, my fatuous and ill-guided enterprise here in trying to um, make this case to a wider public, um, I'm very delighted to be invited to talk to any group of people who want to come along and talk interestedly about this subject. And it seems to me that students and others within universities are just as much a legitimate part of this public as any other. Um, when I find myself in some other settings, uh, I think if we'd done, I might think one day of doing your unconventional uh, maneuver and asking for a show of hands, it turns out that hardly anybody there is currently in universities. It depends a lot on the setting. It's not terribly surprising if talking in a place like this, quite a lot of people are. Um, but, you know, also, I would not, you said, um, you had a phrase, I think, about, you know, we're in universities and have one frame of mind. I don't even think that is true. There are, there are not only are there legitimate differences of view, of course, about the whole uh, matter, but these are often um, issues which I think we in universities, I talk about teaching staff here, uh, perhaps even more than undergraduates, have not previously been driven to reflect on to the extent that we should. Um, and if we are to have a good and intelligent debate on this subject, it seems to me that university members of whatever status are a very good audience to engage with and hear questions from and do my best to give some answers to. Thank you. I'd like to... Can I... Can I just make a couple of, of housekeeping points, really? The first is to tell you, as a, an audience who are interested in, in these subjects, that you might also be interested in another public event. There's an LSE, BBC Radio 4 public event, The Public Philosopher. Should universities give preference to applicants from poor backgrounds? The date of that is Thursday, the 8th of March, which, as you will know, is International Women's Day. <laughs> the time is 7.45 to 9 o'clock. The venue is the Sheikh Zayed Theatre, and the speaker is Professor Michael Sundell. That's uh, uh, open to everybody, but you will require a ticket, so if you want a ticket, please go through the LSE website. The second housekeeping thing to say is that Professor Kalini uh, will be outside at this, this lecture hall signing copies of his, his books, uh, provided you buy them. Uh, he won't be signing copies of them if you don't buy them. <laughs> Thirdly, can I just uh, thank the audience first of all. I'd like to, to thank you for your, your contribution to this discussion, for your very thoughtful comments. Uh, I mean, it's important, I think, for all of us, but perhaps particularly for me as I now approach the end of my uh, five years of my five-year sentence as pro-director teaching and learning before becoming an academic again. Uh, but finally, of course, to thank Professor Kalini. Thank you very much indeed, both for a very stimulating lecture, uh, but also for engaging in a way that I think has really sort of taken the discussion on. And I, and I think, I hope everybody will, will share with me the, the view that 
Uh, we haven't solved the problem, but I think it is something in which we all really have a, an obligation uh, to engage because it is so of such fundamental importance uh, for this country and, and for the, the students of this country. So thank you very much indeed.